453, Chapter 73 of The Count of Monte Cristo. Book talk begins at 342. Welcome to Craftlit, the podcast for crafters who love books. My name is Heather Ordover, and I'm podcasting from where the Delaware River meets the Old York Road, New Hope, Pennsylvania. Episode 453, Super Big. This episode of Craftlet is brought to you by its listeners. Many thanks and much gratefulness to all of the listeners who have gone over to patreon.com slash craftlet and pledged their support to the show. We couldn't do it without you. Thank you. Well, hello. I hope you are well. I am well and I am so excited because today we have a super big, super awesome chapter for you. And there was no crafty chat this week because I was still editing the audio for last week's special episode of the Brave New Podcast. It is my conversation with Lise, you remember from the Knitting Rose podcast. She and I talked about Orwell and language and Orwell's essay called Politics in the English Language. And I don't think you necessarily need to have read the essay to get something out of our conversation. My hope is, though, that it will make you want to read the essay because you really should. It's so good. And it's not, it's not hard and it's not without humor. However, the one caveat I will say is if you do read it and haven't ever touched it before, there are five examples that he places, that they're short paragraphs from other people's writing, that he places very early on in his essay. I highly recommend that you ignore reading those in place and wait until he starts commenting on what's wrong with them later, and then go back and pick them up. Because they're, they're such bad writing. It's the kind of writing that will put you off and make you think, oh, I really, why, bah, I don't need this. But you do, because he does explain, he does explain what's wrong with them. And, and it's fun. And of course, it's always great to hear from Lise over at Knitting Rose Podcast. So that is up on the YouTube channel. It is a video and you'll see there was all sorts of trouble at the beginning with the audio. And then when we finally did start to get the audio recording properly, it didn't sync with our mouths all the time. So that's largely what I have been trying to fix is sliding audio into place to match our mouths as much as possible because it drives me nuts. I don't know about you, but it does drive me nuts. So that will be up on the YouTube channel, which is youtube.com slash craftlit dash channel, just little hyphen dash. And that's it. Now, I have a very cool shout out to give, and then I have several voicemails to play for you. The shout out is to Angela, who works with my husband, and figured this out on a webinar chat on Blackboard. So, hi, Angela. (laughs) That was so cool. And he was so excited. He printed out a little screenshot of your conversation, brief as it was. So, hi, and thank you, and welcome. And let's get to our first voicemail. First, we will hear from... Sarah. This is Sarah, who is Scarilla's on Ravelry. And she actually sent these voicemails several weeks ago. So you're going to hear her return to previous chapters, which is not a bad thing because today's 
chapter builds on our memory of several different things having happened in the past. So here are the voicemails, and uh, Justin has combined them for us here. So it'll sound like one big voicemail from Sarah. Hey, Heather, this is Sarah Blake, Scarolism, Ravelry, etc. Calling to say that in the scene with Villefort uh, going around to uh, talk to the Abbe and to Wilmore, I immediately figured out that it was him. And I don't know. I, I, I think that so I wasn't paying attention to the voice. And I often when this reader is reading, I'm I have no idea who's talking and I have to really pick up on the context clues. And that may just be that I'm being inattentive, but I, I figured out like immediately that it was Villefort. And I think that just really speaks to uh, Dumas' you know, skill at, at writing voice, as you say. But I wonder also how much of it was the translation, because I also got a lot from context cues and just the way that the quote stranger was introduced. Um, I was like, oh, that's like capital S stranger, not like actual stranger. Like it's a stranger to the Abbey, but not to us. So yeah, I thought that was interesting that, you know, that you were saying that it took you a while because I just assumed that it would, everybody would pick up on it as well. <laughs> anyway, so I presume that after Abbe Busone said that he was a, a Lutheran and then, you know, he said something about a, being a Quaker, I presume that what he meant by Lutheran was Protestant because, you know, obviously Protestantism came from Martin Luther and then the Reformation and all that sort of stuff. So rather than it was more like a, no, he's not Catholic. He's, you know, from one of the, one of the sects that, you know, cropped up after Luther and after Luther's ideals, thus a Quaker, because, you know, a Quaker would be derived from that. Not that I know that much about Quakers or Lutherans, but I did read a really, really fascinating and excellent book called Q by Luther Blizé. And actually the, the name Luther Blizé is a pseudonym for four Italian writers, and they all worked on it together. And it is a book about this one person who is kind of a leader in the Protestant Reformation. And uh, it's fascinating. And it takes place in Germany and Italy and Amsterdam. And I think some of it's in France, but I don't really remember. And it's it's so good. So good. So yeah, the Reformation totally was a thing in Italy as well as the rest of Europe. And that's, yeah, so there totally are non-Catholic Italians while Catholicism is still, I think, the predominant religion. Anyway, that book, Q by Luther, like, you know, Martin Luther, Blizzé, B-L-I-S-S-E-T. Everyone should read it. Not everyone, everyone, but, you know, everyone, because it's so good. And why not read a good book? Read a good book. Okay, bye. All right. So we, now we have more information on the Lutheran-Quaker conundrum. So that's always useful. We're certainly compiling a compendium of information on the subject, which is 
great. Now we have a voicemail from Sarah in Houston. She has a little bit of crafty information for you. I wanted to let you know about a book I've heard of. It's called Knit for Health and Wellness by Betson Corkhill. And I found out about it on a podcast by Christy Glass, and she's going to use it as a book club. And I was going to give her your name because she was interested in people who did things similar to the the book, which is about health and wellness. So I just wanted to let you know about the book if you hadn't heard. I love the podcast and the Count of Monte Cristo is great. Oh, and I can't wait to hear the end of your husband's book. Bye. So that's cool. Thank you, Sarah in Houston, for sharing that information. And I'm so glad you are loving Count of Monte Cristo, as am I. And our fourth voicemail is from Ken in Honolulu. Aloha, Ken. Ken's also loving the Count of Monte Cristo, and he has some more insightful comments for us. So here is what Ken has to say. Hi, Heather. This is Ken from Honolulu. Thank you so much for doing the Count of Monte Cristo and all your comments. Count of Monte Cristo is one of my most favorite books in the world. I enjoy it tremendously. You made some comments about Albert and the Count of Monte Cristo that I didn't ring kind of true to what the story is. I haven't read the story in a very long time, so like you, I've forgotten what happened. But you were saying that Albert is probably in the Count of Monte Cristo's crosshairs. I can't see why. Albert wasn't even a twinkle in his mama's eye when all of this stuff went down. So why take it out on him unless you're going to use him as a pawn? But I don't think that the Count of Monte Cristo would. I don't think that that's his... He's more of a, let's get the guys that actually did this to me kind of person. So, I don't know, maybe maybe you're right. You know, he's in his crosshairs sometime, somewhere down the line. And you're definitely right about the fact that the woman knows who Monte Cristo is. She knows that it's Edmond. Because as she was talking to him, she was asking him to forgive her. And he just said straight out, no. I mean, they were doing it, you know... Kind of like, I don't know who you are, Gio, but, you know, let's talk about this, but I really know who you are. And um, she said, no. You know, he says, he said, no, I'm not going to ever forgive you or the people who did this to me. And Albert is smart enough and he's bright enough that he knows that there's something going on between his mother and the Count of Monte Cristo. Because when they were in the, in the room, and they were talking in, uh, in the dinner, in the ball, and she was saying, you know, go ask him directly to take a drink of this or to eat this. And he says, but why? And she says, just, you know, humor me. And when he didn't, Albert kind of knew something was really up. In a lot of cultures, well, I will say in most cultures in the world, when you eat or you drink in someone's house, you're accepting their hospitality. Therefore, you're saying that you accept them, you accept them as a friend or as at least a nice acquaintance. And he is very pointedly saying, I don't like you and I'm not going to accept anything from you. So it's just kind of interesting and all of the different stuff. And I like the little jibe that he did for Zenglar because he says, oh, such and such a company was just filed, you know, just went bankrupt. And Zenglar says, but I have money with them. And Monte Cristo very cunningly says, 
oh, yeah, I had money with them too, but I got a little information before that, so I took my money out, so I didn't lose anything. How much did you lose? That kind of a deal. He's just really jabbing him, but good. Again, thank you very much for the read, for doing Monte Cristo, and thank you very much for your comments. They're fun to listen to. Bye. Have a good day. Aloha. So I thought it was so interesting what Ken was saying about the kind of psychological resistance towards eating and drinking in other people's homes, because I I actually had written down a note that I didn't pursue. And the note was, maybe I didn't pursue it because I didn't remember what I was thinking when I wrote it down, but I wrote down camera for that chapter. And it was because something, something about the way Monte Cristo's resistance, how it felt to me, was kind of like when you read old ethnographers field notes or or research done on and i'm using air quotes primitive tribes and they talk about not wanting to have their picture taken because it was like you were stealing their soul there was some some transactional quality about the food and the drink and mercedes and monte cristo so i am right there with you ken i i know it it meant it meant <laughs> it meant lots and i love that dumas is so able to load that much subtext into something as simple as saying, no, thank you. It's just awesome. (sighs) So I have one more piece of information, and this came through Facebook from longtime listener Judith, who sent a book. (laughs) This is the, the latest book by the guy who brought you Cod and the Basque history of the world. I don't know if you remember, there was a book called Cod that was all on how the fish, Cod, completely affected huge swaths of human history. So he's an interesting guy. And it's Mark Berlansky, I think. And he has written another book called Salt, A World History. And there is an audio edition of it, as well as the written version of it. And there will be links in the show notes in case you are interested. And just a reminder, it's been a long time since I've made this announcement. Anytime you follow Amazon links from the CraftLit website, anything that you purchase on Amazon after that point, during that session, that gives credit back to CraftLit. So it's another way of supporting the show. So the link for Amazon is there. You do not have to purchase that specific book in order to benefit Craftlet. Anything you buy on Amazon at that point kicks us back a little bit. And I know a lot of you have been doing this lately, and I really, really appreciate it. Thank you so much for all the ways that you support Craftlet. All right, there is really, truly nothing that I need to give you before we start listening to the chapter. Everything that is mentioned in this chapter that could throw you, we have dealt with before in other chapters and so here you go massively huge chapter 73 so loaded with character revealing goodness here we go chapter 73 the promise it was indeed maximilian morel who had passed a wretched existence since the previous day with the instinct peculiar to lovers, he had anticipated after the return of Madame de saint Meran and the death of the Marquis that something would occur at Monsieur de Villefort's in connection with his attachment for Valentine. 
His presentiments were realized, as we shall see, and his uneasy forebodings had goaded him pale and trembling to the gate under the chestnut trees. Valentine was ignorant of the cause of this sorrow and anxiety, and as it was not his accustomed hour for visiting her, she had gone to the spot simply by accident, or perhaps through sympathy. Morel called her, and she ran to the gate. "'You are here at this hour,' said she. "'Yes, my poor girl,' replied Morel. "'I come to bring and to hear bad tidings.' "'This is indeed a house of mourning,' said Valentine. "'Speak, Maximilien, although the cup of sorrow seems already full.' "'Dear Valentine,' said Morel, endeavouring to conceal his own emotion, "'listen, I entreat you. What I am about to say is very serious. When are you to be married?' "'I will tell you all,' said Valentine. "'From you I have nothing to conceal. This morning the subject was introduced, and my dear grandmother—' on whom i have depended as my only support not only declared herself favourable to it but is so anxious for it that they only await the arrival of monsieur d'epinay and the following day the contract will be signed a deep sigh escaped the young man who gazed long and mournfully at her he loved alas replied he it is dreadful thus to hear my condemnation from your own lips the sentence is passed and in a few hours will be executed it must be so and i will not endeavour to prevent it but since you say nothing remains but for monsieur de pinay to arrive that the contract may be signed and the following day you will be his to-morrow you will be engaged to monsieur de pinay for he came this morning to paris oh valentine uttered a cry "'I was at the house of Monte Cristo an hour since,' said Morel. "'We were speaking, he of the sorrow your family had experienced, "'and I of your grief, when a carriage rolled into the courtyard. "'Never till then had I placed any confidence in presentiments, "'but now I cannot help believing them. "'At the sound of that carriage I shuddered. "'Soon I heard steps on the staircase, which terrified me as much as the footsteps of the commander did don juan the door at last opened albert de morcerf entered first and i began to hope my fears were vain when after him another young man advanced and the count exclaimed ah here is the baron franz d'epinay i summoned all my strength and courage to my support perhaps i turned pale and trembled but certainly i smiled and five minutes after i left without having heard one word that had passed poor maximilien murmured valentine valentine the time has arrived when you must answer me and remember my life depends on your answer what do you intend doing valentine held down her head she was overwhelmed listen said morel it is not the first time you have contemplated our present position which is a serious and urgent one i do not think it is a moment to give way to useless sorrow leave that for those who like to suffer at their leisure and indulge their grief in secret there are such in the world 
and God will doubtless reward them in heaven for their resignation on earth. But those who mean to contend must not lose one precious moment, but first return immediately the blow which fortune strikes. Do you intend to struggle against our ill fortune? Tell me, Valentine, for it is that I came to know. Valentine trembled and looked at him with amazement. The idea of resisting her father, her grandmother, and all the family had never occurred to her. "'What do you say, Maximilien?' asked Valentine. "'What do you mean by a struggle? Oh, it would be sacrilege. What? I resist my father's order and my dying grandmother's wish? Impossible!' Morel started. "'You are too noble not to understand me, and you understand me so well that you already yield, dear Maximilien. No, no, I shall need all my strength to struggle with myself and support my grief in secret, as you say. But to grieve my father, to disturb my grandfather's last moments, never.' "'You are right,' said Morel calmly. "'In what a tone you speak!' cried Valentine. "'I speak as one who admires you, mademoiselle.' "'Mademoiselle?' cried Valentine. "'Mademoiselle? Oh, selfish man! "'He sees me in despair and pretends he cannot understand me.' "'You mistake. I understand you perfectly. "'You will not oppose Monsieur Villefort. "'You will not displease the Marchioness, "'and tomorrow you will sign the contract which will bind you to your husband.' "'But, mon Dieu, tell me, how can I do otherwise?' "'Do not appeal to me, mademoiselle. "'I shall be a bad judge in such a case. "'My selfishness will bind me,' replied Morel, "'whose low voice and clinched hands "'announced his growing desperation. "'What would you have proposed, Maximilian? "'Had you found me willing to accede?' "'It is not for me to say.' "'You are wrong. "'You must advise me what to do.' "'Do you seriously ask my advice, Valentine?' "'Certainly, dear Maximilian, for if it is good, I will follow it. "'You know my devotion to you.' "'Valentine,' said Morel, pushing aside a loose plank, "'give me your hand in token of forgiveness of my anger. "'My senses are confused, and during the last hour "'the most extravagant thoughts have passed through my brain. "'Oh, if you refuse my advice!' "'What do you advise?' said Valentine, raising her eyes to heaven and sighing. "'I am free,' said Maximilian, "'and rich enough to support you. I swear to make you my lawful wife before my lips even shall have approached your forehead.' "'You make me tremble,' said the young girl. "'Follow me,' said Morel. "'I will take you to my sister, who is worthy also to be yours. We will embark for Algiers, for England.' for america or if you prefer it retire to the country and only return to paris when our friends have reconciled your family valentine shook her head i feared it maximilien said she it is the counsel of a madman and i should be more mad than you did i not stop you at once with the word impossible impossible you will then submit to what fate decrees for you 
without even attempting to contend with it said morel sorrowfully yes if i die well valentine resumed maximilian i can only say again that you are right truly it is i who am mad and you prove to me that passion blinds the most well-meaning i appreciate your calm reasoning it is then understood that to-morrow you will be irrevocably promised to monsieur franz d'epinay not only by that theatrical formality invented to heighten the effect of a comedy called the signature of the contract but your own will again you drive me to despair maximilian said valentine again you plunge the dagger into the wound what would you do tell me if your sister listened to such a proposition mademoiselle replied morel with a bitter smile i am selfish you have already said so and as a selfish man i think not of what others would do in my situation but of what i intend doing myself i think only that i have known you not a whole year from the day i first saw you all my hopes of happiness have been in securing your affection one day you acknowledged that you loved me and since that day my hope of future happiness has rested on obtaining you for to gain you would be life to me now i think no more i say only that fortune has turned against me i had thought to gain heaven and now i have lost it it is an everyday occurrence for a gambler to lose not only what he possesses but also what he has not morel pronounced these words with perfect calmness valentine looked at him a moment with her large scrutinizing eyes endeavouring not to let morel discover the grief which struggled in her heart but in a word what are you going to do asked she i am going to have the honour of taking my leave of you mademoiselle solemnly assuring you that i wish your life may be so calm so happy and so full occupied that there may be no place for me even in your memory oh murmured valentine adieu valentine adieu said morel bowing where are you going cried the young girl extending a hand through the opening and seizing maximilian by his coat for she understood from her own agitated feelings that her lover's calmness could not be real where are you going i am going that i may not bring fresh trouble into your family and to set an example which every honest and devoted man situated as i am may follow before you leave me tell me what you are going to do maximilian the young man smiled sorrowfully speak speak said valentine i entreat you has your resolution changed valentine it cannot change unhappy man you know it must not cried the young girl then adieu valentine valentine shook the gate with a strength of which she could not have been supposed to be possessed as morel was going away and passing both her hands through the opening she clasped and wrung them i must know what you mean to do she said where are you going 
oh fear not said maximilian stopping at a short distance i do not intend to render another man responsible for the rigorous fate reserved for me another might threaten to seek monsieur france to provoke him and to fight with him all oh, that would be folly what has monsieur france to do with it he saw me this morning for the first time and has already forgotten he has seen me he did not even know i existed when it was arranged by your two families that you should be united i have no enmity against monsieur france and promise you the punishment shall not fall on him on whom then on me on you valentine oh heaven forbid woman is sacred the woman one loves is holy on yourself then unhappy man on yourself i am the only guilty person am i not said maximilian maximilian said valentine maximilian come back i entreat you he drew near with his sweet smile and but for his paleness one might have thought him in his usual happy mood listen my dear my adored valentine said he in his melodious and grave tone those who like us have never had a thought for which we need blush before the world such may read each other's hearts i never was romantic and am no melancholy hero i imitate neither manfred nor antony but without words protestations or vows my life has entwined itself with yours you leave me and you are right in doing so i repeat it you are right but in losing you i lose my life the moment you leave me valentine i am alone in the world my sister is happily married her husband is only my brother-in-law that is a man whom the ties of social life alone attach to me no one then longer needs my useless life this is what i shall do i will wait until the very moment you are married for i will not lose the shadow of one of those unexpected chances which are sometimes reserved for us since monsieur france may after all die before that time a thunderbolt may fall even on the altar as you approach nothing appears impossible to one condemned to die and miracles appear quite reasonable when his escape from death is concerned i will then wait until the last moment and when my misery is certain irremediable hopeless i will write a confidential letter to my brother-in-law another to the prefect of police to acquaint them with my intention and at the corner of some wood on the brink of some abyss on the bank of some river i will put an end to my existence as certainly as i am the son of the most honest man who ever lived in france valentine trembled convulsively she loosened her hold of the gate her arms fell by her side and two large tears rolled down her cheeks the young man stood before her sorrowful and resolute oh for pity's sake said she you will live will you not no on my honour said maximilian but that will not affect you you have done your duty and your conscience will be at rest 
Valentine fell on her knees and pressed her almost bursting heart. Maximilian, said she, Maximilian, my friend, my brother on earth, my true husband in heaven, I entreat you, do as I do, live in suffering. Perhaps one day we may be united. Adieu, Valentine, repeated Morel. My God, said Valentine, raising both her hands to heaven with a sublime expression, I have done my utmost to remain our submissive daughter. I have begged, entreated, implored. He has regarded neither my prayers, my entreaties, nor my tears. It is done, cried she, willing away her tears and resuming her firmness. I am resolved not to die of remorse but rather of shame. Live, Maximilian, and I will be yours. Say when shall it be. Speak, command, I will obey. Morel, who had already gone some few steps away, again returned, and pale with joy, extended both hands towards Valentine through the opening. Valentine, said he, dear Valentine, you must not speak thus. Rather let me die, why should I obtain you by violence if our love is mutual? Is it from mere humanity you bid me live? I would rather die. Truly, murmured Valentine, who on this earth cares for me if he does not? Who has consoled me in my sorrow but he? On whom do my hopes rest? On whom does my bleeding heart repose? On him, on him, always on him. Yes, you are right, Maximilian. I will follow you. I will leave the paternal home. I will give up all. Oh, ungrateful girl that I am, cried Valentine, sobbing. I will give up all, even my dear old grandfather, whom I had nearly forgotten. No, said Maximilian. You shall not leave him. Monsieur Noirtier has evinced, you say, a kind feeling towards me. Well, before you leave, tell him all. His consent would be your justification in God's sight. As soon as we are married, he shall come and live with us. Instead of one child, he shall have two. You have told me how you talk to him and how he answers you. I shall very soon learn that language by signs. Valentine, I promise you solemnly that instead of despair, it is happiness that awaits us. Oh, see, Maximilian, see the power you have over me. You almost make me believe you. And yet, what you tell me is madness, for my father will curse me. He is inflexible. He will never pardon me. Now listen to me, Maximilian. If by artifice, by entreaty, by accident, in short, if by any means I can delay this marriage, will you wait? Yes, I promise you. "'as faithfully as you have promised me "'that this horrible marriage shall not take place, "'and that if you are dragged before a magistrate or a priest, "'you will refuse.' "'I promise you, by all that is most sacred to me in the world, "'namely, by my mother.' "'We will wait, then,' said Morel. "'Yes, we will wait,' replied Valentine, "'who revived at these words.' 
there are so many things which may save unhappy beings such as we are i rely on you valentine said morel all you do will be well done only if they disregard your prayers if your father and madame de saint maron insist that monsieur de depinay should be called to-morrow to sign the contract then you have my promise maximilian instead of signing i will go to you and we will fly but from this moment until then let us not tempt providence let us not see each other it is a miracle it is a providence that we have not been discovered if we were surprised if it were known that we met thus we should have no further resource you are right valentine but how shall i ascertain from the notary monsieur deschamps i know him and for myself i will write to you depend on me i dread this marriage maximilian as much as you thank you my adored valentine thank you that is enough when once i know the hour i will hasten to this spot you can easily get over this fence with my assistance a carriage will await us at the gate in which you will accompany me to my sisters there living retired or mingling in society as you wish we shall be enabled to use our power to resist oppression and not suffer ourselves to be put to death like sheep which only defend themselves by sighs yes said valentine i will now acknowledge you are right maximilian and now are you satisfied with your betrothal said the young girl sorrowfully my adored valentine words cannot express one half of my satisfaction valentine had approached or rather had placed her lips so near the fence that they nearly touched those of morel which were pressed against the other side of the cold and inexorable barrier adieu until we meet again said valentine tearing herself away i shall hear from you yes thanks thanks dear love adieu the sound of a kiss was heard and valentine fled through the avenue morel listened to catch the last sound of her dress brushing the branches and of her footstep on the gravel then raised his eyes with an ineffable smile of thankfulness to heaven for being permitted to be thus loved and then also disappeared the young man returned home and waited all the evening and all the next day without getting any message it was only on the following day at about ten o'clock in the morning as he was starting to call on monsieur deschamps the notary that he received from the postman a small billet which he knew to be from valentine although he had not before seen her writing it was to this effect tears entreaties prayers have availed me nothing yesterday for two hours i was at the church of saint philippe du roule and for two hours i prayed most fervently heaven is as inflexible as man and the signature of the contract is fixed for this evening at nine o'clock i have but one promise and but one heart to give that promise is pledged to you that art is also yours this evening then at a quarter to nine at the gate your betrothed valentine de villefort p s 
my poor grandmother gets worse and worse yesterday her fever amounted to delirium to-day her delirium is almost madness you'll be very kind to me will you not morel to make me forget my sorrow in leaving her thus i think it is kept a secret from grandpapa noirtier that the contract is to be signed this evening morel went also to the notary who confirmed the news that the contract was to be signed that evening then he went to call on monte cristo and heard still more france had been to announce the ceremony and madame de villefort had also written to beg the count to excuse her not inviting him the death of monsieur de saint meron and the dangerous illness of his widow would cast a gloom over the meeting which she would regret should be shared by the count whom she wished every happiness the day before france had been presented to madame de saint meron who had left her bed to receive him but had been obliged to return to it immediately after it is easy to suppose that morel's agitation would not escape the count's penetrating eye monte cristo was more affectionate than ever indeed his manner was so kind that several times morel was on the point of telling him all but he recalled the promise he had made to valentine and kept his secret the young man read valentine's letter twenty times in the course of the day it was her first and on what an occasion each time he read it he renewed his vow to make her happy how great is the power of a woman who has made so courageous a resolution what devotion does she deserve from him for whom she has sacrificed everything how ought she really to be supremely loved she becomes at once a queen and a wife and it is impossible to thank and love her sufficiently morel longed intensely for the moment when he should hear valentine say here i am maximilian come and help me he had arranged everything for her escape two ladders were hidden in the clover field a cabriolet was ordered for maximilian alone without a servant without lights at the turning of the first street they would light the lamps as it would be foolish to attract the notice of the police by too many precautions occasionally he shuddered he thought of the moment when from the top of that wall he should protect the descent of his dear valentine pressing in his arms for the first time her of whom he had yet only kissed the delicate hand when the afternoon arrived and he felt that the hour was drawing near he wished for solitude his agitation was extreme a simple question from a friend would have irritated him he shut himself in his room and tried to read but his eye glanced over the page without understanding a word and he threw away the book and for the second time sat down to sketch his plan the ladders and the fence at length the hour drew near never did a man deeply in love allow the clocks to go on peacefully morel tormented his so effectually that they struck eight at half-past six he then said it is time to start the signature was indeed fixed to take place at nine o'clock but perhaps valentine will not wait for that consequently morel having left the rue melee at half-past eight by his timepiece entered the clover field while the clock of saint philippe du roule was striking eight the horse and cabriolet were concealed behind a small ruin where morel had often waited the night gradually drew on and the foliage in the garden assumed a deeper hue 
then morel came out from his hiding place with a beating heart and looked through the small opening in the gate there was yet no one to be seen the clock struck half past eight and still another half hour was passed in waiting while morel walked to and fro and gazed more and more frequently through the opening the garden became darker still but in the darkness he looked in vain for the white dress and in the silence he vainly listened for the sound of footsteps the house which was discernible through the trees remained in darkness and gave no indication that so important an event as the signature of a marriage contract was going on morel looked at his watch which wanted a quarter to ten but soon the same clock he had already heard strike two or three times rectified the error by striking half-past nine this was already half an hour past the time valentine had fixed it was a terrible moment for the young man the slightest rustling of the foliage the least whistling of the wind attracted his attention and drew the perspiration to his brow then he tremblingly fixed his ladder and not to lose a moment placed his foot on the first step amidst all these alternations of hope and fear the clock struck ten it is impossible said maximilian that the signing of a contract should occupy so long a time without unexpected interruptions i have weighed all the chances calculated the time required for all the forms something must have happened and then he walked rapidly to and fro and pressed his burning forehead against the fence had valentine fainted or had she been discovered and stopped in her flight these were the only obstacles which appeared possible to the young man the idea that her strength had failed her in attempting to escape and that she had fainted in one of the paths was the one that most impressed itself upon his mind in that case said he i should lose her and by my own fault he dwelt on this idea for a moment then it appeared reality he even thought he could perceive something on the ground at a distance he ventured to call and it seemed to him that the wind wafted back an almost inarticulate sigh at last the half-hour struck it was impossible to wait longer his temples throbbed violently his eyes were growing dim he passed one leg over the wall and in a moment leapt down on the other side he was on villefort's premises had arrived there by scaling the wall what might be the consequences however he had not ventured thus far to draw back he followed a short distance close under the wall then crossed a path hid entered a clump of trees in a moment he had passed through them and could see the house distinctly then morel saw that he had been right in believing that the house was not illuminated instead of lights at every window as is customary on days of ceremony he saw only a gray mass which was veiled also by a cloud which at that moment obscured the moon's feeble light a light moved rapidly from time to time past three windows of the second floor these three windows were in madame de saint meron's room another remained motionless behind some red curtains which were in madame de villefort's bedroom morel guessed all this so many times in order to follow valentine in thought at every hour in the day had he made her describe the whole house that without having seen it he knew it all 
this darkness and silence alarmed morel still more than valentine's absence had done almost mad with grief and determined to venture everything in order to see valentine once more and be certain of the misfortune he feared morel gained the edge of the clump of trees and was going to pass as quickly as possible through the flower garden when the sound of a voice still at some distance but which was borne upon the wind reached him at this sound as he was already partially exposed to view he stepped back and concealed himself completely remaining perfectly motionless he had formed his resolution if it was valentine alone he would speak as she passed if she was accompanied and he could not speak still he should see her and know that she was safe if they were strangers he would listen to their conversation and might understand something of this hitherto incomprehensible mystery the moon had just then escaped from behind the cloud which had concealed it and morel saw villefort come out upon the steps followed by a gentleman in black they descended and advanced towards the clump of trees and morel soon recognized the other gentleman as dr d'avrigny the young man seeing them approach drew back mechanically until he found himself stopped by a sycamore tree in the centre of the clump there he was compelled to remain soon the two gentlemen stopped also ah my dear doctor said the procureur heaven declares itself against my house what a dreadful death what a blow seek not to console me alas nothing can alleviate so great a sorrow the wound is too deep and too fresh dead dead the cold sweat sprang to the young man's brow and his teeth chattered who could be dead in that house which villefort himself had called accursed my dear monsieur de villefort replied the doctor with a tone which redoubled the terror of the young man i have not led you here to console you on the contrary what can you mean asked the procureur alarmed i mean that behind the misfortune which has just happened to you there is another perhaps still greater can it be possible murmured villefort clasping his hands what are you going to tell me are we quite alone my friend yes quite but why all these precautions because i have a terrible secret to communicate to you said the doctor let us sit down villefort fell rather than seated himself the doctor stood before him with one hand placed on his shoulder morel horrified supported his head with one hand and with the other pressed his heart lest its beating should be heard dead dead repeated he within himself and he felt as if he were also dying speak doctor i am listening said villefort strike i am prepared for everything madame de saint meran was doubtless advancing in years but she enjoyed excellent health morel began again to breathe freely which he had not done during the last ten minutes grief has consumed her said villefort yes grief doctor after living forty years with the marquis it is not grief my dear villefort said the doctor grief may kill although it rarely does and never in a day 
never in an hour, never in ten minutes. Villefort answered nothing. He simply raised his head, which had been cast down before, and looked at the doctor with amazement. "'Were you present during the last struggle?' asked Monsieur de Davrigny. "'I was,' replied the procureur. "'You begged me not to leave. "'Did you notice the symptoms of the disease "'to which Madame de Saint-Méran has fallen a victim?' "'I did. "'Madame de Saint-Méran had three successive attacks, "'at intervals of some minutes, "'each one more serious than the former. "'When you arrived, Madame de Saint-Méran "'had already been panting for breath some minutes. "'She then had a fit, "'which I took to be simply a nervous attack.' and it was only when I saw her raise herself in the bed, and her limbs and neck appeared stiffened, that I became really alarmed. Then I understood from your countenance there was more to fear than I had thought. This crisis passed. I endeavoured to catch your eye, but could not. You held her hand. You were feeling her pulse, and the second fit came on before you had turned towards me. This was more terrible than the first. The same nervous movements were repeated, and the mouth contracted and turned purple. And at the third, she expired. At the end of the first attack, I discovered symptoms of tetanus. You confirm my opinion. Yes, before others, replied the doctor. But now we are alone. What are you going to say? Oh, spare me! that the symptoms of tetanus and poisoning by vegetable substances are the same monsieur de villefort started from his seat then in a moment fell down again silent and motionless morel knew not if he were dreaming or awake listen said the doctor i know the full importance of the statement i have just made and the disposition of the man to whom i have made it "'Do you speak to me as a magistrate or as a friend?' asked Villefort. "'As a friend, and only as a friend at this moment. "'The similarity in the symptoms of tetanus and poisoning by vegetable substances is so great "'that were I obliged to affirm by oath what I have now stated, I should hesitate. "'I therefore repeat to you, I speak not to a magistrate, but to a friend.' and to that friend i say during the three-quarters of an hour that the struggle continued i watched the convulsions and the death of madame de saint meran and am thoroughly convinced that not only did her death proceed from poison but i could also specify the poison can it be possible the symptoms are marked do you see sleep broken by nervous spasms Excitation of the brain, topper of the nerve centres. Madame de Saint-Méran succumbed to a powerful dose of brucine or of strychnine, which by some mistake, perhaps, has been given to her. Villefort seized the doctor's hand. Oh, it, it is impossible, said he. I must be dreaming. It is frightful to hear such things from such a man as you. Tell me, I entreat you, my dear doctor, that you may be deceived doubtless i may but 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 i do not think so have pity on me doctor so many dreadful things have happened to me lately that i am on the verge of a madness 
Has anyone besides me seen Madame de Saint-Méran? No. Has anything been sent for from a chemist that I have not examined? Nothing. Had Madame de Saint-Méran any enemies? Not to my knowledge. Would her death affect anyone's interest? It could not indeed. My daughter is her only heiress, Valentine alone. Oh, if such a thought could present itself, I would stab myself to punish my heart for having for one instant harboured it. Indeed, my dear friend, said Monsieur d'Avigny, I would not accuse any one. I speak only of an accident, you understand, of a mistake. But whether accident or mistake, the fact is there. It is on my conscience and compels me to speak aloud to you. Make inquiry. Of whom? How? Of what? May not Barrois, the old servant, have made a mistake, and have given Madame de Saint-Méran a dose prepared for his master? For my father? Yes. But how could a dose prepared for Monsieur Noirtier poison Madame de Saint-Méran? Nothing is more simple. You know poisons become remedies in certain diseases of which paralysis is one. For instance, having tried every other remedy to restore movement and speech to Monsieur Noirtier, I resolved to try one last means, and for three months I have been giving him brucine, so that in the last dose I ordered for him there were six grains. This quantity, which is perfectly safe to administer to the paralysed frame of Monsieur Noirtier, which has become gradually accustomed to it, would be sufficient to kill another person. My dear doctor, there is no communication between Monsieur Noirtier's apartment and that of Madame de Saint-Méran, and Barrois never entered my mother-in-law's room. In short, doctor, although I know you to be the most conscientious man in the world, and although I place the utmost reliance on you, I want, notwithstanding my conviction, to believe this axiom, errare humanum est. Is there one of my brethren in whom you have equal confidence with myself? Why do you ask me that? What do you wish? Send for him. I will tell him what I have seen, and we will consult together and examine the body. And you will find traces of poison? No, I did not say of poison. But we can prove what was the state of the body. We shall discover the cause of her sudden death, and we shall say, dear Villefort, if this thing has been caused by negligence, watch over your servants. If from hatred, watch your enemies. What do you propose to me, Davrigny? said Villefort in despair. So soon as another is admitted into our secret, an inquest will become necessary, and an inquest in my house. Impossible. Still, continued the procureur, looking at the doctor with uneasiness, if you wish it, if you demand it, why, then it shall be done. But, doctor, you see me already so grieved. How can I introduce into my house so much scandal after so much sorrow? My wife and my daughter would die of it. And I, doctor, you know a man does not arrive at the post I occupy. One has not been king's attorney twenty-five years without having amassed a tolerable number of enemies. 
mine are numerous. Let this affair be talked of. It will be a triumph for them, which will make them rejoice and cover me with shame. Pardon me, doctor, these worldly ideas. Were you a priest, I should not dare to tell you, but you are a man, and you know mankind. Doctor, pray recall your words. You have said nothing, have you? My dear Monsieur de Villefort, replied the doctor, my first duty is to humanity. I would have saved Madame de Saint-Méran, if science could have done it, but she is dead, and my duty regards the living. Let us bury this terrible secret in the deepest recesses of our hearts. I am willing, if anyone should suspect this, that my silence on the subject should be imputed to my ignorance. Meanwhile, sir, watch always, watch carefully, for perhaps the evil may not stop here, and when you have found the culprit, if you find him, I will say to you, you are a magistrate, do as you will. I thank you, doctor, said Villefort with indescribable joy. I never had a better friend than you. And as if he feared Dr. Davrigny would recall his promise, he hurried him towards the house. When they were gone, Morel ventured out from under the trees, and the moon shone upon his face, which was so pale it might have been taken for that of a ghost. "'I am manifestly protected in a most wonderful but most terrible manner,' said he. "'But Valentine, poor girl, how will she bear so much sorrow?' As he thought thus, he looked alternately at the window with red curtains and the three windows with white curtains. The light had almost disappeared from the former. Doubtless Madame de Villefort had just put out her lamp, and the night lamp alone reflected its dull light on the window. At the extremity of the building, on the contrary, he saw one of the three windows open. A wax light placed on the mantelpiece threw some of its pale rays without and a shadow was seen for one moment on the balcony. Morel shuddered. He thought he heard a sob. It cannot be wondered at that his mind, generally so courageous, but now disturbed by the two strongest human passions, love and fear, was weakened even to the indulgence of superstitious thoughts. Although it was impossible that Valentine should see him, hidden as he was, he thought he heard the shadow at the window call him. His disturbed mind told him so. This double error became an irresistible reality, and by one of the incomprehensible transports of youth he bounded from his hiding-place, and with two strides, at the risk of being seen, at the risk of alarming Valentine, at the risk of being discovered by some exclamation which might escape the young girl, he crossed the flower-garden, which by the light of the moon resembled a large white lake, and having passed the rows of orange trees which extended in front of the house, he reached the step, ran quickly up, and pushed the door, which opened without offering any resistance. Valentine had not seen him. Her eyes raised towards heaven were watching a silvery cloud gliding over the Asia, its form that of a shadow mounting towards heaven. Her poetic and excited mind pictured it as the soul of her grandmother. Meanwhile, Morel had traversed the ante-room and found the staircase, 
which being carpeted prevented his approach being heard and he had regained that degree of confidence that the presence of monsieur de villefort even would not have alarmed him he was quite prepared for any such encounter he would at once approach valentine's father and acknowledge all begging villefort to pardon and sanction the love which united two fond and loving hearts morel was mad happily he did not meet anyone now especially did he find the description valentine had given of the interior of the house useful to him he arrived safely at the top of the staircase and while he was feeling his way a sob indicated the direction he was to take he turned back a door partly opened enabled him to see his road and to hear the voice of one in sorrow he pushed the door open and entered at the other end of the room under a white sheet which covered it lay the corpse still more alarming to morel since the account he had so unexpectedly overheard by its side on her knees and with her head buried in the cushion of an easy chair was valentine trembling and sobbing her hands extended above her head clasped and stiff she had turned from the window which remained open and was praying in accents that would have affected the most unfeeling her words were rapid incoherent unintelligible for the burning weight of grief almost stopped her utterance the moon shining through the open blinds made the lamp appear to burn paler and cast a sepulchral hue over the whole scene morel could not resist this he was not exemplary for piety he was not easily impressed but valentine suffering weeping wringing her hands before him was more than he could bear in silence he sighed and whispered a name and the head bathed in tears and pressed on the velvet cushion of the chair a head like that of a magdalen by correggio was raised and turned toward him valentine perceived him without betraying the least surprise a heart overwhelmed with one great grief is insensible to minor emotions morel held out his hand to her valentine as her only apology for not having met him pointed to the corpse under the sheet and began to sob again neither dared for some time to speak in that room they hesitated to break the silence which death seemed to impose at length valentine ventured my dear friend said she how came you here alas i would say you are welcome had not death opened the way for you into this house valentine said morel with a trembling voice i had waited since half past eight and did not see you come i became uneasy leapt the wall found my way through the garden when voices conversing about the fatal event what voices asked valentine morel shuddered as he thought of the conversation of the doctor and monsieur de villefort and he thought he could see through the sheet the extended hands the stiff neck and the purple lips your servants said he were repeating the whole of the sorrowful story from them i learned it all but it was risking the failure of our plan to come up here love forgive me replied morel i will go away no said valentine you might meet someone stay 
but if anyone should come here the young girl shook her head no one will come said she do not fear there is our safeguard pointing to the bed but what has become of monsieur d'epinay replied morel monsieur france arrived to sign the contract just as my dear grandmother was dying alas said morel with a feeling of selfish joy for he thought this death would cause the wedding to be postponed indefinitely but what redoubles my sorrow continued the young girl as if this feeling was to receive its immediate punishment is that the poor old lady on her deathbed requested that the marriage might take place as soon as possible she also thinking to protect me was acting against me hark said morel they both listened steps were distinctly heard in the corridor and on the stairs it is my father who has just left his study to accompany the doctor to the door added morel how did you know it is the doctor asked valentine astonished i imagined it must be said morel valentine looked at the young man they heard the street door close then monsieur de villefort locked the garden door and returned upstairs he stopped a moment in the ante-room as if hesitating whether to turn to his own apartment or into madame de saint merens morel concealed himself behind a door valentine remained motionless grief seeming to deprive her of all fear monsieur de villefort passed on to his own room now said valentine you can neither go out by the front door nor by the garden morel looked at her with astonishment there is but one way left that is safe she said it is through my grandfather's room she rose come she added where asked maximilian to my grandfather's room i in monsieur noirtier's apartment yes can you mean it valentine i have long wished it he is my only remaining friend and we both need his help come be careful valentine said morel hesitating to comply with the young girl's wishes i now see my error i acted like a madman in coming here are you sure are you more reasonable yes said valentine and i have but one scruple that of leaving my dear grandmother's remains which i had undertaken to watch valentine said morel death is in itself sacred yes said valentine besides it will not be for long she then crossed the corridor and led the way down a narrow staircase to monsieur noirtier's room morel followed her on tiptoe at the door they found the old servant barois said valentine shut the door and let no one come in she passed first noirtier seated in his chair and listening to every sound was watching the door he saw valentine and his eye brightened there was something grave and solemn in the approach of the young girl which struck the old man and immediately his bright eye began to interrogate dear grandfather said she hurriedly you know poor grandmamma died an hour since and now i have no friend in the world but you his expressive eyes evinced the greatest tenderness to you alone then may i confide my sorrows and my hopes the paralytic motioned yes valentine took maximilian's hand look 
attentively then at this gentleman the old man fixed his scrutinizing gaze with slight astonishment on morel it is monsieur maximilien morel said she the son of that good merchant of marseilles whom you doubtless recollect yes said the old man he brings an irreproachable name which maximilian is likely to render glorious since at thirty years of age he is a captain an officer of the legion of honour the old man signified that he recollected him well grandpapa said valentine kneeling before him and pointing to maximilian i love him and will be only his were i compelled to marry another i would destroy myself the eyes of the paralytic expressed a multitude of tumultuous thoughts you like monsieur maximilien morel do you not grandpapa asked valentine yes and you will protect us who are your children against the will of my father noirtier cast an intelligent glance at morel as if to say perhaps i may maximilien understood him mademoiselle said he you have a sacred duty to fulfil in your deceased grandmother's room will you allow me the honour of a few minutes conversation with monsieur noirtier that is it said the old man's eye then he looked anxiously at valentine do you fear you will not understand yes oh we have so often spoken of you that he knows exactly how i talk to you then turning to maximilian with an adorable smile although shaded by sorrow he knows everything i know said she valentine arose placed a chair for morel requested barois not to admit any one and having tenderly embraced her grandfather and sorrowfully taken leave of morel she went away to prove to noirtier that he was in valentine's confidence and knew all their secrets morel took the dictionary a pen and some paper and placed them all on a table where there was a light but first said morel allow me sir to tell you who i am how much i love mademoiselle valentine and what are my designs respecting her noirtier made a sign that he would listen it was an imposing sight to witness this old man apparently a mere useless burden becoming the sole protector support and adviser of the lovers who were both young beautiful and strong his remarkably noble and austere expression struck morel who began his story with trembling he related the manner in which he had become acquainted with valentine and how he had loved her and that valentine in her solitude and her misfortune had accepted the offer of his devotion he told him his birth his position his fortune and more than once when he consulted the look of the paralytic that look answered that is good proceed and now said morel when he had finished the first part of his recital now i have told you of my love and my hopes may i inform you of my intentions yes signified the old man this was our resolution a cabriolet was in waiting at the gate in which i intended to carry off valentine to my sister's house to marry her and to wait respectfully monsieur de villefort's pardon no said noirtier we must not do so no you do not sanction our project no there is no other way said morel the old man's interrogative eye said what i will go continued maximilian 
I will seek Monsieur Franz d'Epinay. I am happy to be able to mention this in Mademoiselle de Villefort's absence, and will conduct myself toward him so as to compel him to challenge me. Noirtier's look continued to interrogate. You wish to know what I will do? Yes. I will find him as I told you. I will tell him the ties which bind me to Mademoiselle Valentine. If he be a sensible man, he will prove it by renouncing of his own accord the hand of his betrothed, and will secure my friendship and love until death. If he refuse, either through interest or ridiculous pride, after I have proved to him that he would be forcing my wife from me, that Valentine loves me and will have no other, I will fight him, give him every advantage, and I shall kill him, or he will kill me. If I am victorious, I will not marry Valentine, and if I die, I am very sure Valentine will not marry him. Noirtier watched with indescribable pleasure this noble and sincere countenance on which every sentiment his tongue uttered was depicted, adding by the expression of his fine features all that colouring adds to a sound and faithful drawing. Still, when Morel had finished, he shut his eyes several times, which was his manner of saying, No. No, said Morel, you disapprove of this second project, as you did of the first? I do, signified the old man. But what then must be done? asked Morel. Madame de Saint Meran's last request was that the marriage might not be delayed. Must I let things take their course? Noirtier did not move. I understand, said Morel. I am to wait. Yes. But delay may ruin our plan, sir, replied the young man. Alone, Valentine has no power. She will be compelled to submit. I am here almost miraculously, and can scarcely hope for so good an opportunity to occur again. Believe me, there are only the two plans I have proposed to you. Forgive my vanity, and tell me which you prefer. Do you authorize Mademoiselle Valentine to entrust herself to my honor? No. Do you prefer I seek out Monsieur Depinay? No. Whence, then, will you come the help we need, from chance? resumed Morel. No. From you? Yes. You thoroughly understand me, sir. Pardon my eagerness for my life depends on your answer. Will our help come from you? Yes. You are sure of it? Yes. There was so much firmness in the look which gave this answer. No one could at any rate doubt his will if they did his power. Oh, thank you a thousand times. But how? Unless a miracle should restore your speech, your gesture, your movement, how can you, chained to that armchair, dumb and motionless, oppose this marriage? A smile lit up the old man's face, a strange smile of the eyes in a paralyzed face. Then I must wait, asked the young man. Yes, but the contract the same smile returned will you assure me it shall not be signed yes said noirtier the contract shall not be signed cried morel oh pardon me sir i can scarcely realize so great a happiness will they not sign it no said the paralytic notwithstanding that assurance morel still hesitated 
this promise of an impotent old man was so strange that instead of being the result of the power of his will it might emanate from enfeebled organs is it not natural that the madman ignorant of his folly should attempt things beyond his power the weak man talks of burdens he can raise the timid of giants he can confront the poor of treasures he spends the most humble peasant in the height of his pride calls himself jupiter whether noirtier understood the young man's indecision or whether he had not full confidence in his docility he looked uneasily at him what do you wish sir asked morel that i should renew my promise of remaining tranquil noirtier's eyes remained fixed and firm as if to imply that a promise did not suffice then it passed from his face to his hands shall i swear to you sir asked maximilian yes said the paralytic with the same solemnity morel understood that the old man attached great importance to an oath he extended his hand i swear to you on my honor said he to await your decision respecting the course i am to pursue with monsieur d'epinay that is right said the old man now said morel do you wish me to retire yes without seeing mademoiselle valentine yes morel made a sign that he was ready to obey but said he first allow me to embrace you as your daughter did just now noirtier's expression could not be understood the young man pressed his lips on the same spot on the old man's forehead where valentine's had been then he bowed a second time and retired he found outside the door the old servant to whom valentine had given directions morel was conducted along a dark passage which led to a little door opening on the garden soon found the spot where he had entered with the assistance of the shrubs gained the top of the wall and by his ladder was in an instant in the clover field where his cabriolet was still waiting for him he got in it and thoroughly wearied by so many emotions arrived about midnight in the rue melee threw himself on his bed and slept soundly end of chapter 73 okay so the next time you hear of anyone treating somebody who's been uh, paralyzed or who's had a stroke and can't speak any time you hear them being treated as though they can't think just think back to noirtier because i have never seen a book where someone incapable of speech or movement has played such a pivotal role with possible exception of a brief history of time with stephen hawking but he could talk through his computer so that doesn't even count this is so cool on so many levels but it's so amazing that okay number 1 maximilian made it in number 2 poison number 3 noirtier so awesome the poison thing well actually there there are two things that i wanted to ask you about the first one is during the whole back and forth between maximilian and valentine i wrote down a note early on in their conversation morel versus sinjin from jane air and i put a smiley face next to morel and a sad face next to sinjin later in the conversation i put a question mark next to that smiley face next to morel because i started to feel like he was manipulating valentine in maybe kind of similar ways 
to what Sinjin was doing. By the time they were done with the conversation, I'd gone back. So I've been waffling <laughs> all over the place about Maximilian's tactics in talking to Valentin at the beginning of this chapter. Now, the conversation between Viefort and the doctor, I thought was fascinating. Watching a doctor back at a time when, you know, they're largely called sawbones, because really that's, that's what they did. And also putting this into context for Americans who have seen lots of, of documentaries and, and seen lots of stories about the, the Civil War and the level of medical, pharmacological, and sanitary support that, that you had if you called on a doctor. I thought this was really interesting because he sounded a lot more like a modern doctor to me instead of somebody who just came in and said, oh, let's put leeches on this <laughs> and call it a day. He seemed really interesting to me and smarter than your average bear. Now, what I didn't know was what tetanus looks like in a human because we get tetanus shots. I don't, I don't know about any other country, but I know that, that tetanus shots as a child, tetanus boosters as a child and as an adult as well. I think you're supposed to get a booster shot every 10 years. I hated that. I hated those shots. I hate shots. Who doesn't hate shots, right? But here is one of those places where you think, wow, I love shots because common signs and symptoms of tetanus. <laughs> it's a tetanus bacteria. It incubates in your body for seven to 10 days. And the common signs and symptoms are spasms and stiffness in jaw muscles, stiffness in neck muscles, difficulty swallowing. At this point, I'm thinking, wow, this sounds like rabies. Stiffness of your abdominal muscles, painful body spasms lasting for several minutes, typically triggered by minor occurrences such as a draft, loud noise, physical touch, or light. And those symptoms can also have with them fever, sweating, high blood pressure, rapid heart rate. Evidently, tetanus enters through a wound. We know that. And it enters as a spore. And the spore latches on and grows into a bacteria. This is all so yuck. And again, so glad that, <laughs> that there are shots for this because the spores grow into a bacteria and that bacteria produces a toxin. It's, a, it's like a neurotoxin. It, it hurts the nerve endings that control your muscles. So motor, motor neurons get beaten badly by this toxin. Once the damage is done to those nerves, it can take months for the nerve endings to repair themselves, regrow, heal. So that's bad because even if you survive it, you can still be in bad shape for months, months. So really, really, really super important. Book with your doctor and get yourself vaccinated if you haven't had a tetanus booster recently. It's not just stepping on a rusty nail that can cause the problem. They said they have had tetanus come in through these different routes. The things you already know of, puncture wounds, stepping on a nail, stepping on something uh, spiky in general, splinters, piercings, tattoos, injection of drugs with unsanitary needles, gunshot wounds, compound fractures, because if the skin has torn, stuff can get in, and then it'll get all the way in. That would be really bad. Burns, surgical wounds, animal and sometimes even insect bites if the insect is big enough. <laughs> Infected foot ulcers, 
So the ulcer thing from 1984, for those of you who are listening over at patreon.com slash brave new podcast, foot ulcers, that's a risk zone, dental infections, and infected umbilical stumps in newborns born of inadequately immunized mothers. There are so many different ways to get this. And yikes. And, and yes, if they catch it in enough time, but remember, it's been growing for seven to 10 days by the time they can catch it. They can possibly get at it with antibiotics, but it is so deep and so strong a toxin that this stuff, it latches on and it won't let go. It's the Gila monster of bacteria. You could really, really be in deep yogurt. So helpful safety tip. Who knew you were going to get that from Craftlet? Ah, the stuff we land on. Then there was uh, the discussion of poisons, brucine and strychnine. These are very similar to each other. Brucine is weaker. Strychnine is very poisonous. It is, I think, in our modern world, most frequently associated with things like rat poison, which it certainly has been used for. However, just like some of the other dangerous uh, poisons and for some reason, anthrax is going through my mind. Strychnine can be, if it's if it's in powdered form or crystalline form, it can be inhaled. That would be bad. So if you you, know, you drop a box of rat poison and it goes poof, back away quickly. It can be inhaled. It can be swallowed. It can be absorbed through the eyes, ew, or the lining of your mouth. And all of this can cause poisoning, which eventually leads to convulsions, just like tetanus. And ultimately, you'll die from asphyxiation because your, your muscle spasms will be so horrifyingly strong that you can no longer breathe. So that's kind of scary. Now, we also heard the doctor talking about having given Noitier brucine, which re reacts very similarly to strychnine. Uh, they have a similar origin. Um, but he's been giving him brucine to create muscle spasms because you have somebody who is paralyzed. So he's trying to get some kind of muscle response out of Noitier. And he's been giving him very low doses. And I, I think anybody who's read an Agatha Christie murder mystery, you've probably seen some, some instance where someone has been gradually building up a resistance to Iocane powder or something like that. Evidently, that's something that's been going on with Noitier. The doctor quietly and without making a big deal about it, has worked him up to six grains. And when we're talking about grains, this goes way back. It goes to a Troy grain, 64, plus or minus, more on the plus side, I think, uh, 64 milligrams, which is, in theory, this was the mass of a single seed of, of wheat or, or of, a, of a grain that you would then eat as a, as a cereal. So that's what a grain is. Then there are grains for jewelers and all that other stuff, but this for, for food or for pharmaceuticals, uh, about 64 milligrams. So not very many at all. Small, small, small amount. All right, so we don't exactly know what Noitier's plan is. We sort of have a vibe of what's going on between Valentine and Morel. We have the death of Vifor's previous mother-in-law. Uh, lots and lots has happened. We don't really know what it means yet, but that would have added too much to the chapter, so we'll just let that one go. 
The only other piece of news I have for you is my husband's book, The Cat Came Back, will be ending and we will be starting for the new premium audiobook, The Wizard of Oz. It's time. It's taken a while. I have an expert on The Wizard of Oz who I have on deck to record with me, and I think you will be fascinated by what he has to say. Those of you who were on the 2015 tour, yes, the 2015 tour up to York and the Lake District, you will remember Marcy. Marcy's husband is our expert. So very exciting. I am looking forward to this. We only have a couple more episodes for Cat Came Back, and then it's done, and Wizard of Oz begins. If you are not currently a premium audio member, but are interested in it, I have an infographic over at craftlit.com slash 453. I'm also posting the graphic on Facebook. I think, I hope, helps to explain all of the different ways that you can access Craftlit based on your needs and desires. I hope it helps because I know it's confusing. The show's been, it's been around for so long that technology grew up around us and there are plenty of people who are still using kind of the old school technology and I don't want to push them off that. So there are lots of ways to listen. So you should have no trouble finding the way that is best for you. All right. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you for making it all the way through this chapter. And I'll talk to you soon. Take care. Have a great one. Bye. A big thanks to all the Craftlit listeners who support the show by being a premium audio member via craftlit.com slash premium or via patreon.com slash craftlit. Your support for the show is what's kept us going since 2006. If you feel like getting free audio pretty much every week, please consider supporting the show by heading over to patreon.com slash craftlit and pledging what you feel the show is worth to you. If you can't support the show that way, consider leaving a review at iTunes or at our facebook.com slash craftlit page or follow at craftlit on Twitter and share the show with your followers too. And remember, if your hands are too busy to pick up a book, at least you can turn one on.